Well, very pleasant good morning to each one of you. It certainly is good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for coming and worshiping God uh, with us in this particular place. Our lesson this morning was originally, I originally planned to preach this uh, last Sunday morning at this particular hour, but uh, as you know, if you were here last Sunday, Brent uh, asked if he could have the uh, worship hour to present his lesson to us on worship, and I think he did a really excellent job of that. And so this lesson is really, in many ways, a follow-up to the lesson that we did a couple of weeks ago. That lesson was entitled, People Need the Lord. And the whole point of that lesson is that people need the Lord, that everybody in this life, wherever they are, whatever age they are, uh, whatever their background and experience is, wherever they come from around this globe that we call earth, everyone needs the Lord Jesus Christ and needs to have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, our, our lesson is going to be somewhat of a follow-up to that. In the text that our brother Richard read, and if you have your Bible, you might want to open there again to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul posed in those three verses one very crucial question to these saints here in the city of Corinth, followed by three significant statements. And what we want to do this morning is to consider this text of 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. And as we do that, we're going to really filter our study through the lens of the second statement that the Apostle Paul makes here in this text. And that is a statement that such were some of you. Whether we realize it or not, whether we think about this very often or not, the fact remains that the one body of Jesus Christ and each local congregation, each collective group of saints in a particular location that belong to Christ, is composed of countless such were some of you people. And I'm just confident in an audience this size that there are a number of us who could fit into this category that we're going to be thinking about this morning. Such were some of you. But whether you place yourself in that category or not, I assure you that you will find something in this morning's sermon that applies to you. Because I know that this sermon first and foremost applies to me. And so I would invite all of us who are here this morning to listen very carefully, very closely, very intently to what the Apostle Paul wrote here in 1 Corinthians 6 about this matter of such were some of you. As we consider that statement, first of all, I want us to think about what Paul says here to these saints and to us as he gives an admonition about sin. If you know anything at all, and I'm sure many of us at least that have studied through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians or maybe have studied through the book of Acts back in chapter 18 when the gospel went to the city of Corinth with the Apostle Paul and others, that you have studied something about the city of Corinth. But in case you haven't, this is for you and to remind ourselves if we do know about that city that basically we could say in a nutshell that the culture at the city of Corinth was sinful to its core. From what I know about this city, Paul's list here of sins that he, that he mentions in this text in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 6, it's just a very small sample of all the sins that were openly practiced here in the city of Corinth that were accepted 
as just being normal behavior that we're not only accepted, but we're embraced and encouraged for people to just devote themselves to, to practice from day to day. And therefore, as Paul is writing these instructions to these Christians here in that kind of environment, that kind of culture, he is wanting to make sure that these saints were not deceived about these sins. And so he says to them at verse 9, do not be deceived. How easy it would have been for some of these saints here in Corinth to think that fornication or idolatry was really no big deal because they used to practice those things. How easy it might have been for some of these Christians in this church to return to some of these former practices before they became, became Christians, to return to adultery or to return to homosexuality. How easy it might have been for these Christians in this church and this culture to be influenced to be covetous people or to be drunkards again. And yet Paul is saying to them here in these few verses that if they were deceived about these sins to the point that they returned to them, that they practiced them again in their lives, they would become unrighteous people and they would not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice here at the beginning of this thought or this question, Paul asked there, as if they were supposed to know the answer already at verse 9, he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then, of course, he lists all of these sins that people practice. And he says about all of those sins, all of those kinds of people who practice these sins, that they, again, at the end of verse 10, will not inherit the kingdom of God. This seems to be a major point, in my mind anyway, that Paul is driving home to this church because he says the same thing twice, that those who are unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're not going to be under God's rule, under God's reign. They're not going to be in fellowship with God. Although we live in a different time and culture, certainly than that of first century Corinth, I want to ask you the question this morning, are we much different today? As we think about the, the world in which we live, and more specifically as we think about the nation in which we live, the United States of America in 2021, as we think about the atmosphere, the environment, the neighborhood, the culture, whatever word you want to use that we live in today, are we very much different than the culture which these Christians found themselves living in, Corinth? And I would suggest to you that we're not. Let me just ask you a few questions about some of these particular sins that Paul lists here in these verses. How many Americans are regularly practicing fornication or adultery? I mean, maybe some of the people that you work with are just talk about these things openly. And there is no shame in any of that. And they think that that is just what everybody does. That it doesn't matter if you're married or not. That you can have sexual relations with anyone that you want to any time of day. And the covenant, the relationship of marriage does not matter at all. It doesn't factor into whether I'm going to have sex with someone who is my spouse or not. How many Americans today are worshiping idols? I understand there may not be, as was true in the city of Corinth, that there is some uh, wood or gold or silver statute in, in everybody's home here in the United States of America that they bow down to and pray to and worship and serve in some capacity like that, but we still have our idols, don't we? 
In fact, I don't know if there's still a, a show going on, a talent show, but it used to be called American Idol. <laughs> I watched that show several times. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with watching that, but just the title of it, American Idol. We have our idols today. How many Americans approve of homosexuality? From the statistics that I've seen in the last few years, there is just a very, very, very small percentage of Americans that say that they practice homosexuality, but their message has gotten out loud and clear in our culture, hasn't it? It has pervaded and invaded our thinking to the point where many Americans, even some, many who say that they are religious, even some who claim to follow Christ, say there's nothing wrong with practicing homosexuality. How many Americans see no problem with getting drunk? Just like committing fornication or adultery, this is something that everybody does. And we talk about it. I'm not saying we as Christians, but the world talks about it when they come into the office on Monday morning about what they did Friday night or Saturday night. How many Americans are fine with coveting or taking what other people possess? We've seen that kind of on display in the last couple of years on the news with riots and looting and doesn't matter if it belongs to you, I want it, so I'm taking it for myself. How many Americans see insulting, reviling a fellow human being as just something that is normal? That's what we do in America. So I would submit to you that our culture is not much different at all than the culture in which these Christians found themselves living here in Corinth. And whether you here this morning have struggled or maybe you're still struggling with these particular sins or not that are listed in our text, if we are not careful as Christians, we can allow our culture to influence us just as it was a danger for these Christians in the city of Corinth to allow their culture to influence them. We can allow our American culture today to influence us to think that all of these things that Paul lists here in verses 9 and 10 are no longer sins. They're just really not that bad. We can begin to think, as our culture has thought for a long time now, that fornication is just shacking up, or it is hooking up, or it is having safe sex. I'm a little bit older now. I don't know if these are the terms that the younger generation is using or not, but these are some that I have heard just in recent years that it's not fornication. No, we've called it something else. We can be influenced to think that adultery is just having an affair with someone, that it's not really adultery that is not a, a sin in the eyes of God. We can think that homosexuality has just been presented to our culture for a while now as just an alternate lifestyle. It's one of many different lifestyles that we could choose to live. We, we can be influenced to think that drunkenness is a disease. And for this particular one, don't get me wrong. I mean, alcoholism, I believe, is a disease. There, there could be, I don't know, all the scientific medical stuff related to this, but we could have a genetic tendency perhaps to go in some of these directions. But the thing is, we have to make a choice as Christians whether we're going to give in to those desires or not. We can be influenced to think that reviling or threatening or insulting another human being is just, that's who I am. That's who I am. I don't mean anything by it. Those are just the words that come out of my mouth. But that's just who I am and I can do nothing to change. And so, brothers and sisters, first of all, take this admonition to, to, about sin to heart. Don't fall for the devil's deception about these 
often socially accepted sins because they still are sins in the eyes of the Lord. Because if we do, as Paul makes abundantly clear here, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. So having set that as a foundation, then we want to think more specifically about the point of our lesson this morning and thinking about this phrase, such were some of you. We need to think for just a few moments about who we were before we became Christians, before we came to Christ, if we are Christians. Whether we practice, again, these specific sins or not that Paul lists here in these two verses before we became Christians, I I think the truth of the matter is for all of us that all of us were in the same boat. All of us were sinking, as it were, in the sea of sin before we came to Christ. Just, I want us to look at three New Testament passages this morning out of many that we could consider that I believe make this particular point or help to remind us of who we were before we came to Christ. The first of those is in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, read with me there, verses 1 through 3. Paul says here, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, or by long habit, I think, is a better reading there, children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul makes it very clear to these Christians in the city of Ephesus, and to us as well, that before Christ, all of us, he says, were spiritually dead. He begins here in verse 1 and verse 2, I believe talking specifically to those who were Gentile Christians, as he'll get back to them beginning at verse 11, and saying to those Gentile Christians, yes, you walk just like the the rest of the world, you live like the world, but then he includes himself and Jews and all of us in verse 3 when he says, among them we too all formerly lived. Yes, maybe in the Jews' minds they were better if they were comparing themselves to Gentiles. The Gentiles were down here and the the Jews were up here morally and spiritually speaking in their relationship to God. But as Paul made clear throughout the book of Romans, especially in those early chapters, all of us have sinned. We we are all in the same boat. We, We stand all in condemnation before God because of our sin. But before Christ, Paul is saying to this audience here of Jews and Gentiles, to all of us, that we were all spiritually dead. Our our physical bodies, we may have been as alive as we could be on the outside and appeared like we were full of life and full of energy. But spiritually, he says, we were dead. We were all conformed to the world, Paul says. We were all under the influence of the prince of this world, Satan himself. We were all disobedient children. We were all people who were indulging not only the lust of the flesh, he says, but the lust of our mind. We were people who were living large on inward and outward lusts that were in opposition to God's will. He says at the end of verse 3 that we were children of wrath. I don't know exactly what Paul has in mind there. It may be very similar to what he just said about being sons of disobedience, (laughs) that we were living like the rest of the world. We weren't children of peace. We were children of wrath. But also because of our sin, we were living under God's wrath, if you will. And he says that applies to all of us before we came to Christ. Secondly, we're going to tie all three of these passages together here in just a minute. 
Go to Titus chapter 3 at verse 3. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. Here the Apostle Paul says much the same thing that he wrote back in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, For we once also were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Before Christ, Paul says in this text, again, all of us, we were all fools in God's eyes. We, we were all living according to the foolish wisdom of the world, not the wisdom that is from God, that is from above. We were all disobedient to His will, maybe to various degrees, in various ways. But we were all disobedient to God's will. We were all deceived by the deceiver, Satan himself. We were all slaves, again, to our own sensual appetites that are in opposition to our spiritual appetites. We were all not loving our neighbor as ourselves. We were hatefully, he says, and hating one another. This is the way that the world has been since sin has come into the world. It's not something that is peculiar just to our modern American culture or just to the last couple of years where it seems like in our country that the, the hatred level, the, the hatred meter, if you will, is just going off the charts. Instead of loving one another as people who are made in God's image, we are hating one another. And that's who we were before we came to Christ. And then I want us to think about Peter's words in these regards. Over in 1 Peter chapter 4 at verse 3, 1 Peter 4 and verse 3, Peter writes here, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Peter isn't saying really anything different than the Apostle Paul was saying back in Ephesians 2 and Titus chapter 3. Peter says to Christians of his day and to us that before we came to Christ, there were some of us who were chasing the good life as our culture describes it and defines it. We were just out there doing what feels good to us, feeding our fleshly lust, losing our inhibitions, no self-control, doing whatever we pleased without any thought of whether what we were doing was pleasing God or not. Let me ask you, as you think about the things that are written here in these three New Testament texts, do you see your old self in any of these texts? If you're very honest with yourself, do you see yourself before you came to Christ here? If so, you have absolutely no reason to boast when you compare yourself to the world, you have no reason to de de despair or despise rather or disdain people who are still slaves to sin because all of us were once in that condition. And rather than us talking down to them and despising them and acting like they're not worthy of our time or our attention, Rather, we ought to be people who are reflecting on who we were before we were Christians. And that reflection ought to cause us and to fill us with love and mercy and grace that will cause us to teach those people who are still caught up in sin. It will cause us to teach them God's truth and show them the way out. That first of all, there is a way out that they can change. And the way out is through Jesus Christ. Again, 
you may be sitting here this morning and thinking, as we've read not just 1 Corinthians 6, but these other passages, well, that really wasn't me specifically. You know, I, I didn't get drunk. I didn't hate people. I didn't do this, that, or the other. But though we may not have practiced or been slaves to the same sins as some of the Corinthian saints were, or even some of our brethren once were, that are living among us today, the fact still remains that at one point in time, we all were spiritually dead. We all were slaves to sin, whether we realize that or not. We were all living for the flesh. We were all living like the world in some way in our life. That's who we were before we came to Christ. But I also want us to think as we go back to 1 Corinthians 6 about who we are now in Jesus Christ. And Paul uses three words here to describe who we are now at verse 11. These are three past tense words, but these are three very beautiful, very wonderful words that have much meaning for us. Number one, he says, we are washed people. And that is the idea of us being cleansed from sin in the waters of baptism. You can go back in your mind. We're not going to turn to this passage this morning, but Romans chapter 6, that, that we put that old man of sin to death. <laughs> and we have risen to walk in newness of life. We have been washed. We have been cleansed from our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ as we contacted that blood in baptism but also as you read the New Testament, there are passages like Ephesians chapter 5. I think it's about verse 26. Even Jesus in talking to his disciples back in John chapter 15 and this idea of him being the vine and they being the branches and him pruning us or cleaning us. We could also say, I think it is very closely related to this idea of washing here that yes, we are washed from our sins definitely in the waters of baptism and we go forth from the waters of baptism to walk in newness of life, to walk as a clean, a new creation before God. But as we continue to live as Christians each day, we can be cleansed, not that we have to be baptized every time that we sin, but we continue to be cleansed by the word of God. That it is Christ's words, as he said to his disciples in John 15, about verse 3, that the words I have spoken to you are what have made you clean. As Paul wrote again in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, that Christ, as he gave himself for the church, he washed us by water and by the word. That as we imbibe the word, as the word lives in us, as even John led us in the song this morning about Jesus being the bread of life, and, and as uh, Brother Sonny read to us this morning from the Gospel of John about Jesus and his statement that he's a living bread that came out of, out of heaven and we have to eat his flesh, we have to drink his blood, we have to partake of Jesus, not in a, in a literal sense, but we are feeding on his words. Jesus is living in us as we have sung this morning we are cleansed continually by the Word of God because it is the perfect standard. And we look into the mirror for the soul, as James tells us in James chapter 1, and we see where we fall short. We see where we are dirty in essence. And taking the Word into our heart and living that in our life cleanses us. But secondly, he says to us back in our text that we now in Christ are sanctified people. That is the idea that we are now set apart for God's purpose. We are set apart 
to do God's will, to do God's work here on earth. We are in a very real sense. I don't know if this is an is a English word or not. But we are in a very real sense holified. You remember what Peter says to us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 and following, going back to the words that God said to His people of old, the Israelites in the Old Covenant, that God is holy, therefore we are to be holy. Peter says we are to be holy. God, really speaking through Peter, says you be holy for I am holy. That we're not just living like everybody else. We're not thinking that fornication and adultery and homosexuality and drunkenness and covetousness and speaking evil of our fellow human being, that that's just normal. That's just who we are. No, we have been sanctified. We have been set apart for God. And thirdly, a beautiful word here that we have been justified. We are now justified in Christ. This is the idea that we are now made right with God. We stand and are declared to be just before God. I think about this word justified. Maybe we don't use it in this sense as much as we used to. But I remember in school writing papers, and I know some of you are still doing that. Uh, Probably one of the worst things that you like to do, unless you just really like to write things. But writing papers and your teacher may say, I I want the margins justified. That means I I want everything to line up. And and that, at least in my mind, is, is at least a part of what I think about as I think about this word justified before God, that we are lined up with God. We are aligned with God. We are right with God. And Paul says to these who were before Christ adulterers and fornicators and homosexuals and thieves and drunkards. He says, now you're justified. You are aligned with God. I want us to go back and look at those same texts that we looked at just a moment ago. We looked at them and read them from the negative side. Now I want us to consider them from the positive side of who we are now in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, we read verses 1 through 3. That's the bad news. Here's the good news beginning at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are recipients of God's mercy. Because we have received God's rich mercy, because we have received God's great love, because we have received God's infinite grace in His Son, Jesus Christ, Paul says, then we, by faith in Him, we were saved from our sins. But now, in Christ, we are His workmanship. We we have been set apart, as we just said. We've been washed, cleansed from our sins in the waters of baptism on the basis of our faith in Him because of God's love and mercy and grace that He has shown in Christ. But that's not the end of the story. (laughs) Now we are sanctified, we are set apart to be His workmanship, to do His good work. 
once again to this passage that we looked at previously in the book of Titus. Uh, this time going back to the very end of Titus chapter 2. We read there again the bad news at verse 3, but let's read the good news here. Beginning at verse 11 of Titus 2, Titus says here, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us and redeemed us, uh, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous of good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them, Paul goes on to tell Titus in verse 1 of chapter 3, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to, for every good work, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Again, Paul is saying, I think, a very similar thing that he said just in the passage we read from Ephesians chapter 2. As recipients of God's grace, as he's shown that to us through his son Jesus Christ, we must let the grace of God work in our lives and work on us. We must allow God's grace to teach us, to discipline us, to train us, to not be people who are conformed to the world, to not be people who think fornication and homosexuality, and theft, and drunkenness is just normal. And it's fine and okay for us to be involved in those things. We must let God's grace teach us and train us to be people who are transformed to Jesus Christ. Paul says in this passage, we are to be zealous for good deeds. We are to be those people who are in submission to those who are in authority. I know we think as Americans that's been very difficult for us to do the past couple of years. I will tell you, in the stories that I have heard of our brethren in other countries, we, we haven't even begun to touch that. <laughs> because the restrictions, the laws that were made in other countries around the world, much, much, much more harder to be in submission to those governing authorities than our own. Paul says, this is who we are now in Christ. And once again, we are to be loving our neighbor as ourself. We're not to be hating one another. We're not to have that hateful uh, attitude of despising others. But we are to love others as being made in God's image. And then back to this text in 1 Peter chapter 4 again. Again, we read the bad news there at verse 3, but here is the good news at verses 1 and 2. Peter says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. We must, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we must follow Christ's perfect example. And Peter, throughout this book of 1 Peter, is telling these Christians as they're suffering for being Christians, for following Christ, that, hey, Christ suffered first for you. And Christ left you a perfect example of how you're to respond, how you are to live in the midst of suffering. And so he does here at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. He says that we must follow Christ's perfect example. We must live out the rest of our earthly existence for Him, not for ourselves, not, not indulging the, flat, the, the desires, the lust of our flesh and of our mind, 
We're not living for self. But he says we're going to live for Christ. We're going to do our Father's will. And we're going to do that even as we perhaps suffer for doing that. As verse 4 goes on to say here in this text, In all this, they, the world, your former friends even, are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. We're going to be called names. We're going to be talked down to. We, we are going to be ostracized for being like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Not just the things that Peter mentions was true of their former life and was true of their world and our world today in verse 3, that we no longer practice those things. We no longer live that kind of lifestyle. But in every way that we are called to follow the example of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we're going to suffer for it. If you are in Christ this morning, let me ask you like I ask us to examine ourselves about the previous passages where I said, did we see our former, former self in those texts? As you look at these three texts and many others that we could add this morning, if we are people who are Christians, do we see ourselves in these texts? Does this describe who we now are? I don't mean that we are, we are this in perfection like Christ is. But are we working toward that? Are we becoming more and more like Jesus Christ every day? If so, I would say to all of us that we still have no reason to be arrogant toward our fellow man, to be arrogant toward the majority of the world that is still engaged in these sins, that is still living under the influence of Satan. But rather we have every reason, every reason to teach them the good news of Jesus Christ so that they too, like us, can be completely changed. And they can be completely changed from the inside out. And they, like we are, if we are children of God, they can be in the such were some of you category of those who are now saints who were formerly sinners. Sometimes I, I, I fear that we speak of ourselves, and I'm talking to those of us who are Christians, we talk about ourselves and we say, well, we're just sinners. And I, I think I understand what we mean by that. We're saying to someone, we're trying to be humble, I hope, in making statements like that and saying to someone, well, I'm not perfect. <laughs> I haven't arrived yet. Maybe in the vein of what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, that even he is an apostle and a preacher of the gospel of Christ. He says, I'm still striving toward the goal. I'm still pressing every day with every ounce of energy that I have toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But brothers and sisters, if we are in Christ, we are no longer sinners in the sense that we are alienated from Christ. We are now saints. We are holy ones. We have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been justified. And yes, even as Christians, we're still going to sin. We're still going to have imperfections. There are still going to be weaknesses that we display but we need to think of ourselves as being saints. Such were some of you, but now. That's how we need to consider ourselves. Our culture, as we've already pointed out this morning, our American culture in this particular time, 
boldly and openly promotes and practices all of the sins that the Apostle Paul mentioned in our text. And more than that, our culture seems to be speaking this message to us very loud and clear right now and telling us that if we are involved in these kinds of things, if this is who we are, that we cannot change who we are. That, that message has certainly been presented by the homosexual community to us, hasn't it, in the last number of years? This is how I was born, and there's nothing I can do to change it. What are we going to say when those who are pedophiles say, this is how I was born, and there's nothing I can do to change it? This is the good news of the gospel of Christ, is that we can change. But I will tell you, without Christ, our culture is exactly right. That none of these things really matter, that we cannot change, that we are stuck where we are. But with Jesus Christ, our culture is totally wrong. For with Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Master, not only can we change, but I would say to you this morning very strongly, very boldly, as best I can, that with Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, we will change. And we will change from such were some of you to being people who are conformed to the image of His Son. What about you this morning as we close our sermon? Do you need to experience the change that only Christ can give? If you are struggling with some sin in, in your life and you're not a Christian, you don't have the help of deity to help you get out of that. You cannot save yourselves. None, none of us can. Christ is our Savior. And you desperately need Him in, his, in your life. All of us need Him to be our Lord and our Savior. What about you this morning? Maybe you do see yourself presently in some of these sins that we have read about this morning. And if that is the case, the perfect solution to our sin is Jesus the Christ. If that's you this morning, once you come before this audience, confess your faith that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And repenting of your sins, you can be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. You can have all of that wiped away, taken away, never to be brought up again. And you can walk away from this building as a new creation and to devote the rest of your days to being His workmanship, to being zealous for good works. As a child of God, if you have done those things in the past, it may be that you're not really living like Christ has called you to live. And, and I know, I mean, I can tell you from my own personal experience that those sins of the past, that person who I was before I became a Christian, that old man wants to come back into my life at certain times. And sometimes I'm weak and I, I crack the door open a little bit and let him in. But as Christians, we have the power of God on our side to then kick him out and close the door again. And if that's you and you have let sin into your life again and it has caused damage in your relationship to God and your relationship to your family, to your co-workers, to your friends, to your fellow brethren, why not turn away from that this morning? Maybe you just need to talk about that to God personally and privately. Maybe you need to get that out in the open and let us pray for you and with you. It may be that sin hasn't entered your life, but you're just really struggling because 
we live in this culture that pushes all of these things on us so much. And we feel the peer pressure to just go along with the crowd. And maybe this morning you just need encouragement and strength and help to be who you need to be in Christ. However, we can be of help to you this morning. If you need to respond to the invitation of our gracious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we'd encourage you to do that now as we stand and as we sing.